This is the Dating and Relationship Show with Laura Bellata from singleinthecity.ca, Toronto's news. Today's talk, 640 Toronto. Hey, everyone, and thanks for joining me for another great episode of the Dating and Relationship Show on AM640 Toronto. I'm Laura Bellata, your host. How do hormones affect us as we age? Well, let's take a deep dive into this with my guest tonight, Dr. Emmy Hosoda. Uh, Dr. Emmy is a board-certified doctor empowering women and men 40-plus to age backwards and live a vibrant life. I'm sure you guys like the sounds of that because I definitely do. Her specialties are nutrigenomics, personalized medicine, and hormone health. And tonight, we're going to be taking a closer look at hormones, how uh, they affect you as you get older, and some tips to help you keep that sex life healthy along the way. Well, thank you so much for joining me, Dr. Emmy. And Dr. Emmy is another amazing person that I met on Clubhouse, and I absolutely love her and her advice. Like I, I, Every time she speaks, I listen. <laughs> She's just one of those people. So thank you so much for joining me tonight, Dr. Emmy. My pleasure. I really love to talk about this topic. So thank you. I know you do. <laughs> One of your specialties is, is obviously hormone health, uh, something that many of us probably don't think too much about all, uh, until we get there in life. Why is it so important to pay attention to this? And can hormone imbalance affect us at any age? Yeah, it can affect us, you know, many times, even when we're younger, like I myself have a, something called PCOS. It's a syndrome where, you know, your hormones are out of whack, even when you're young, and it can cause for some people issues with their insulin and weight gain and all that. So it can happen at any age, but it does happen more often over the age of 35, uh, especially in women. And a lot of times women will present to their doctors who don't know a lot about menopause or perimenopause. We don't really get trained in it very much in medical school, even in OBGYN. I mean, I started out in OBGYN before I switched to internal medicine. We, we don't learn a lot about the change of life and some of the things that it can do. And so people will present in their thirties going like, I'm having all these symptoms and their doctor will be like, oh, you're just too young for, for that. But that's not really true. It can happen then. And for some people it can happen way earlier, for instance, people who have autoimmune disease can have these changes occur much earlier. Yeah. And, and what are some of the ways that hormones affect us? So as we the, age, let's say, let's talk about as yeah, we age, what are, as we age, ways? yeah, that's definitely. So, you know, one of the main things that happens as we age is that our adrenal glands, which are on top of our kidneys, there are these glands that make all of our fight or flight hormones, our cortisol, which helps us deal with stress. Uh, but can have some downsides if it's elevated all the time. And there's another hormone that a lot of people don't talk about and don't even know about. That hormone is called DHEA, dihydroepiandrosterone. That dihydroepiandrosterone, that particular hormone actually shuts off cortisol in the brain. So when you're under a lot of stress and your cortisol is kind of, you know, driving this fight or flight response and kind of raising your blood sugar, um, you know, because Cortisol is an ancient hormone. A lot of people don't know this, but like my son's a fisheries biologist and even like invertebrates, like sponges, you know, make cortisol. So it's been around a long time. It's a hormone that deals with stress. And, and as humans, like it was a very productive hormone back when we were hunter gatherers, because what would happen is we would get just chased by predators and the cortisol would go up as part of our fight or flight hormones. There's some other ones, epinephrine, norepinephrine, and the cortisol would actually make us more resistant to the effects of the hormone insulin. So our body would listen to insulin and it would raise up our blood sugar so that we could get blood sugar to our muscles and it would take you know, the, the blood away from our gut and into our muscles so we could run away from the predator. And so it's, a, it's an ancient hormone that's been around and served our ancestors well. 
The problem is that nowadays we don't run away from predators. So when our cortisol goes up, it's for something that's chronically with us, like financial troubles or an annoying coworker or a boss that gets on our nerves or relationship issues or our kids. And these stressors are there all the time. So our cortisol can, can spike and it can stay there. Well, when you go through the change, which can happen as early as 35, you don't make that hormone DHEA that goes up to the brain and shuts off cortisol anymore as well. It's one of the first hits that happens in, in this change. So way before your estrogen goes down and all of that, this DHEA hormone goes down. And so a lot of people, you know, they feel this irritability and, you know, this lack of desire that comes from being in this constant hypervigilant state. And a lot of it has to do with not being able to shut off their fight or flight hormones as well. And a lot of people don't know that there are things you can do about that. So it becomes an issue, not only in like your personal life or your relationships with other people, but sometimes in, you know, your sexual life as well. Now, I know that you take such a different and deeper approach to hormonal health. And I, I honestly, and I, you know, I've told you this before, I wish you lived closer that I can be one of your patients and I can't currently travel. So that's not possible, but yeah. I do want to come visit you once I can. Um, but maybe uh, temporarily, I can just send you my blood in the mail. Is that possible? Yeah. <laughs> um, so how is seeing someone like yourself that practices functional medicine different than just going to get regular uh, blood work done at the doctor's office? Because I think the two, uh, when I listen to you on Clubhouse, it, it sound very different. It's quite different. And, you know, I was a regular doctor and I moved towards functional medicine because of a personal journey that I had. I have a child who's on the autism spectrum and really, you know, those, maybe there's some parents who have kids on the autism spectrum listening, but when you go through the regular medical system, there's a lot, a lot of help that's offered to you. And so I started going down that functional medicine path to really try to help my son. But in the meantime, you know, I was pre-diabetic. I was hundred pounds overweight. And a lot of those principles started applying to me. And then I started seeing like my patients who were diabetic and, and, you know, people would come to my office, like these drug reps and they'd be, be like, well, when your diabetic patient fails this drug, you know, you can start them on this one and this one. And I was like, hold on, you know, like everything I'm reading now says that this disease should be reversible if you take a deep dive and look at the reasons for why it's happening. So, um, so it really helped me to look and functional medicine is just a systematic way of looking at patients. It's taking their whole health into account. So for instance, when someone comes in for their functional medicine exam, they fill out a whole questionnaire that has to do with their lifestyle, their sleep, whether or not they have mercury fillings or not, how they were born, were they breastfed or bottle fed? I mean, it's very detailed. I and love it. Also it also looks for points in their life where things could have gone wrong. I mean, you're presenting today with these hormonal issues, but what happened to you two years ago that might've happened, you know, brought this on? Like, was it a divorce? Was it a death in the family? So it looks at the patient as a whole and really takes all that into account, but it also does testing for things that a lot of people don't think about, like toxins. Like a lot of people don't know that toxins like heavy metals can affect how your body processes estrogen. For instance, if you have heavy metals, you can't get, or, get rid of estrogen. You won't be able to make testosterone, for instance. So it looks at things, not just for like, oh, your testosterone's low, let's give you testosterone, but your testosterone's low, let's figure out if there's a reason for it or if it's just your age. Oh my goodness, heavy metals. I never even thought of that one. What are some ways that yeah. we can get rid of heavy metals in our body? Like I, I'm assuming all of us have remnants of heavy metals in us. So yeah, so the main way is a lens of some sort stop your exposure. So like I have a patient, she's a lovely lady in her seventies and she just like, she was doing all the right things not to lose weight, but her estrogen levels kept being high and 
we looked at him, looked at it, and her blood lead level was high. In the meantime, her blood pressure was also going up because lead can affect your vessels and your blood pressure. Well, it turned out she was working in this um, library where they do uh, genealogy, and she was handling all these old books that had lead, and there's also old lead paint in the in the walls of where she was. And so, you know, her lead levels were high. And the first thing we did was just remove her exposure. She wore gloves at work. She wore a mask. They actually had to redo that building because they found out that it was, you know, exposing people to lead. Um, but, you know, the first is remove that. And then there are things we can do, but you'd want to do this under the supervision of a physician. You don't want to go around chelating yourself. A lot of people think they should, but they shouldn't because it can cause problems with your minerals that need to be monitored. And so if you do have heavy metals, it needs to be proven, you know, number one and number two treated by somebody who's professional at doing it. So it's not a DIY. Do not do a DIY on that. Okay. So for someone that doesn't have a doctor like you, what are some of the things that you should ask about? Like, for example, do I go to my doctor and say, hey, can you test me for heavy metals? Like, would they so even they know what, what I'm talking yeah. about? <laughs> I hate to say that, but. They may not know the association with hormones, for instance, if they're not somebody who deals with hormones all the time, but they can test for heavy metals in the blood. Now, usually by the time they're in the blood, they're actually really prominent. And this lady of mine had it in her blood, you know. Um, so by that time, it's, it's really prominent. We can do more sensitive collections in the urine actually um, to test for heavy metals and hair, although hair has the limitation that it's old a lot of times by the time you catch it. So you don't know if the heavy metals are there now or they were there before and not now. Hair can be a good screening test because if it's not in the hair at all, it's probably not there, but then you have to follow it up and kind of prove it with something else. So um, so yeah, but, but the blood test is available everywhere and at least you know, at that level, if you have it in your blood, you should definitely know. And that one, your doctor can test for. All right. So should we bother just asking our GP to provide us with these tests? Or do we go about finding a doctor like yourself in our, in our city? Because I think once upon well, a time, you said, you know, you said I, I think you were going to send me um, someone who practiced functional medicine at the same school that you did uh, in, uh-huh. in the Toronto area. And I don't think right. that ever happened, but I, that's okay. Well, I can tell you how to <laughs> Things get busy. Them. I get it. Which might be better. I can teach you how to fish. So uh, the Institute for Functional Medicine, which is where I got my my training, actually has a find a provider service, uh, which does work, I believe, all through North America, because I have seen people in Canada on it. And basically, you go to the Institute for Functional Medicine, you put in your zip code, I don't know what you guys call zip codes in Canada, but you can put in your zip code or your city, and how many miles you're willing to travel, and it will give you a list of the doctors around you. Now, you may have to screen those doctors, because there's functional medicine doctors, for instance, who are neurologists and they don't know a lot about hormones. So you have to figure out one that really knows hormones, but okay. you might be able to find one that, that does, you know, if you're not able to come to me, that might be. Okay. Scary. Amazing. I just wrote that down. I'm going to yeah. Google it as soon as I get off the phone with you, but I really want to see you at some point. I would love <laughs> how often should we be checking in on our hormonal health? Like how often, like a year, every year, every six months, especially if you're, let's say in perimenopause and maybe in menopause. Yeah. So during those years, it's good to have, you know, levels every time you have a change in your symptoms, I would say, you know, um, I had mine checked early on because of my PCOS. It was followed, you know, really carefully because my testosterone levels were high and I presented with like extra hair when I was a kid and all that stuff. But for those who don't have symptoms, I would say when you have symptoms, now there's different ways of checking hormones. The one that your doctor might know about is the blood. And the blood is a good snapshot, but it has several limitations. Number one, it's a snapshot. Number two, if you're a woman who's still having cycles, you have to time the blood to actually catch what you want to catch. So for instance, if you're looking to see if you have low desire, um, 
and you're looking to see if it's a testosterone issue, you want to check your labs at day four after your cycle starts, because if you check it at day seven, that's the peak of your testosterone. And you're going to be like, oh, my testosterone is just fine. But the rest of the month, it's really low, for instance. So the doctor has to know when to check those levels for what they're looking for. Um, you know, if you're someone that has uh, PMDD, you have issues with, you know, premenstrual issues. You want to check your labs around day 24 if you have a 28-day cycle. So you're catching when or like when, right when your symptoms start. So that you can see what's happening hormonally is your progesterone dipping, you know, at that time below where it's Dr. Emmy, I, I hate to cut you off, but we're going to take a quick break. And when we come back, we're going to continue this conversation. So Absolutely. stay with us, everybody. We're talking hormone health today. We'll be back. You're listening to the Dating and Relationship Show with Laura Bellata from singleinthecity.ca. Toronto's News. Today's talk, 640 Toronto. Welcome back to the Dating and Relationship Show, everybody. You're listening to AM640 Toronto with myself, Laura Bellotta from singleinthecity.ca, joined by my great friend on Clubhouse, Dr. Emmy. And we're chatting about hormones and aging. And before the break, we were talking about uh, how often we should be checking in on our hormonal health. And uh, I'm just going to allow uh, Dr. Emmy to continue now. Yeah. So we're talking about, you know, you, if you're a woman who cycles, you want a time when you check the hormones with the cycles. Like if you have low desire, you're going to want to do your labs around day four so that you're not catching a testosterone peak. You're catching where your testosterone normally is. Whereas if you have like PMDD and you're looking at, you know, premenstrual symptoms, you want to check right when those symptoms start before your period to see like, is your progesterone low then? So, you know, those hormones change throughout your cycle. That's the thing about blood. And so, you're going to want to time it with the cycle and your symptoms. So you need a doc that really understands like what's going on with the cycle and what are your symptoms and when's the best time to check this blood work. If you're trying to get, um, you know, find out how you're metabolizing hormones and I married this test actually with a genetic test. Um, so for instance, if I have someone on estrogen, I want to know, are they metabolizing this estrogen? Well, or are they turning it into a metabolite that can actually bind, bind to their breasts in a bad way and increase their risks? So I checked that in urine, that test is called the Dutch test and it looks for hormone metabolites um, and shows you like, oh, this person's making this estrogen metabolite that's really not good. It's gonna bind in the breast, but it, you know, it's not something that really helps your symptoms that much. So if a person has that, I'm gonna look at their genetics and go like, what's going on in their genetics that I can change? And, and you know, a lot of people, again, try to DIY their high estrogen levels. They'll take an herb or whatever, and it, it really depends on your genetics, what you wanna do about that. For instance, if your problem is in your liver, you're gonna to wanna to take, uh, you know, different things. And if your problem is a gene called COMT is the reason that you're not clearing estrogen, or if your problem is heavy metals that you're not clearing estrogen. So I look at that metabolite test and go, hmm, what's going on that, that they're not clearing, you know, these hormones well. So I check it there. And then the, the third way you can check hormones is in saliva. And that's really helpful if you're trying to get a snapshot of hormones over time. Like if you're trying to see, you know, if somebody's not sleeping, is their cortisol peaking at the wrong time? Like instead of their cortisol peaking at four in the morning, is it peaking at like midnight and waking them up? You care, you get those saliva samples and then you can see what's happening to the cortisol over time, over that 24 hour clock. So those are three ways of checking hormones. Blood, which is a snapshot and has to be timed with your cycle if you're a cycling woman. If you're a man or you're not cycling anymore post-menopause, then the, that doesn't matter so much, it's easier. Number two is urine where you're looking for metabolites. How are you metabolizing those hormones or are you turning them into something bad? 
Uh, and this can be coupled with genetics to see what genetics are causing issues if you have that. And number three would be saliva if you're looking for what we call diurnal variation or variation over a 24 hour period. Some doctors even do saliva when they're looking at variations over a month, for instance, for somebody who has this weird bleeding and they can't figure out you know, what's going wrong in their cycle. So I'm assuming then that every woman should probably go see a hormonal doctor rather than just their GP. I'm assuming that. And I, I know that some ladies actually will visit a naturopath. Same thing? Uh, some naturopaths are trained in functional medicine and some are not. So there's okay. different docs that can have this particular kind of training and get more training when it comes to hormones. So not all naturopaths are created equal either, but there are a lot of naturopaths that know a lot about hormones. So you definitely want to check out the expertise of the doctor before like wholesale giving your life over to them. Well, you know, my doctor <laughs> recently, like a, a few months ago, gave me some estrogen and I said, okay, uh -huh. so how do I take this? She said, well, you know, put it on your wrist and just use it for like two weeks and then go off of it for two weeks. And I said, well, uh -huh. can that like, but she, she didn't even test my blood. And I said, well, shouldn't I test my blood first? I said, is this safe? She says, yeah, it's fine. <laughs> but I'm hearing that bioidentical hormones can actually cause cancer. So I am so confused because you're sitting here relying on your doctor and is the information my doctor giving me correct, especially when she, she hasn't taken a sample of my blood. So I'm, I was kind of concerned. I took it for a little bit. I found no change. My hot flashes were the same. So I went off it. I think I took it for a couple of weeks. I just didn't feel comfortable taking it. Well, for one thing, if you have a uterus, you never want to take estrogen alone. So if you have a uterus, you always have to take estrogen with progesterone because estrogen yeah. can actually build up the lining of your uterus. And so you need progesterone to flush that out. So if you're okay. a lady who's not had a hysterectomy and someone is just handing you estrogen to get take systemically, now a little bit of vaginal estrogen is different in this step. But if somebody is giving you estrogen that's going to go into your blood, either through the your skin, not low dose in the vagina, but through your skin, under your tongue, whatever it is, but they're not giving you progesterone, be alarmed. <laughs> okay. Because that's- There you go. See? Um, number two is, yes, like I really believe in checking those levels to see where that person is. I like have to take that into consideration and that, you know, it can vary and all that, but you have to understand the variations. I personally really believe in checking those metabolites to see what you're doing with these hormones because we're all different. And I really believe in checking your genetics to know how are you going to handle this hormone? Because if you have an issue in your liver and I can tell from the genetics that you're going to have issues with, you know, metabolizing progesterone, well, then I'm not going to give you a bunch of progesterone. So I'm going to know that. So it helps to predict what's going to happen. In the old days, we had to like do all these trial and errors. And a lot of old docs are kind of used to doing it that way. The fact is you can actually have information ahead of time to have more predictive value of what's going to happen. So, yeah. Wow. Interesting. Well, I'm glad that I uh, talked to you today. <laughs> <laughs> so um, what are some other ways that hormones can affect us as we age? So, you know, estrogen is, is really an interesting thing because in small amounts, it actually helps with belly fat. But if you go over a certain amount of estrogen, for every person, that amount's different. But usually if it's if it's in the higher range than normal, then what it can do is it can interfere with your thyroid function. And that's one of the ways where people really get into trouble because then they can't turn T4, which is the kind of hormone that their thyroid makes, into T3, which is the kind of hormone that your body actually uses. So when you have high estrogen levels, whether it's you're taking estrogen you're not watching your environmental estrogens and you're getting a bunch from plastic and BPA lined cans, or 
you're getting it in your personal care products, wherever you're getting it, it can interfere with thyroid function. So that's a very important thing to know. And if a doctor is giving you estrogen and not checking your thyroid, especially your T3, be alarmed. <laughs> Again. Oh my goodness. So that's, that's number one, because I mean, people come to me all the time. They're like, they told me these hormones would make me lose weight. And now I've gained weight. And it's like, yeah, I know why. Um, <laughs> progesterone um, is also interesting because it can kind of help a lot to modulate thyroid hormone um, when it's at the right dose, but in high doses, it can actually increase cortisol levels. Um, and that can make you gain belly fat, as we know, because cortisol makes you, as we talked about, resistant to insulin. And once you're resistant to insulin, you don't handle your blood sugar and you spike up your insulin levels. And, you know, a lot of people know insulin is this hormone that diabetics take to control their blood sugars, but we all make insulin, uh, you know, to control our blood sugar. But the other thing insulin does is control our fat level. So every time that your blood sugar spikes and insulin spikes with it, that's actually a signal to your body to pack on pounds. And so if cortisol, if you're under stress and your cortisol is high, you're taking progesterone and your cortisol is high and you become insulin resistant, that's going to be a signal for your body to pack on the pounds also. So it's really important to know about these hormones and what their downside things are. Their upsides are, you know, estrogen can like help your skin. It can help you, like I said, in small doses with belly fat, it can help your, you know, function in the intimate areas for sure. Um, so can progesterone, progesterone also has a lot to do with mood and it has a lot to do with muscle. Testosterone has to do with desire and muscle. So all of these things are important. Um, you know, DHEA, as I talked about, has to do with shutting off cortisol and helping you relax and, you know, be more adaptive in life and forgiving and all that. So I remember having a, a little book, it was called Menopop and it was this pop-up book about menopause. And unfortunately someone took it out of my office. It was my favorite little book, but I had like the 10 symptoms of menopause. And one of them was everyone's head sounds like an invitation to batting practice. And that's that low DHA. <laughs> and one of them was, you know, the dryer, you know, shrank every last bit of your genes. And a lot of that has to do with the DHA and not being able to shut off cortisol and becoming insulin resistant. So the hormones have everything to do with how we oh really goodness. understanding them and controlling them the right way has a lot to do with how we end up in our you know, 50s, 40s, 50s, 60s, and 70s, whether those are great years that are like the best years of your life, because you've done what you're going to have to do, you're where you're supposed to be in your career, or if they're years where you're sitting there suffering from hot flashes and belly fat. So when should we be alarmed? Like, for instance, I don't, I can't lose weight like I used to. Okay, I just can't, unless I really go on like a, a strict type of diet or really, really watch what I eat. Um should I be alarmed or because I'm not really heavy, but I just can't seem to lose the weight. Let's just say, I mean, um, I especially would, the belly fat. I would be looking at it. You know, I would see like, is my DHEA level low? Cause there's certain things you can do for that. You can actually do these certain mind body wellness exercises to lower your cortisol. You can actually take supplements that sort of help with the adrenal glands and the production of DHEA. It's not again, a DIY, but phosphatidylserine is one of those that I use in this particular instance, if someone has low DHEA to kind of try to get them to shut off cortisol. So I would be looking for why, you know, a lot of us at midlife, that's when our thyroid goes back. Hashimoto's is really mainly a disease of middle-aged women. So, uh, and that's autoimmune thyroid disease. And a lot of people don't look for it. They kind of just check one test for thyroid and they're like, oh, your thyroid's fine. Well, meanwhile, you have this raging autoimmune thyroid thing going on. And even though your thyroid snapshot might look okay that day, 
when you have autoimmune thyroid disease, your thyroid just doesn't function well. And a lot of endocrinologists that really know about thyroid, and there's not that many, but the ones that do know that you actually treat someone with Hashimoto's who has symptoms. Um, and so, you know, a lot of people have that totally missed, and that's the reason they've been gaining weight and struggling. So there's a lot of things that you can learn by learning about your hormones and, you know, your health in that way. And so um, I think that, it, you know, if you can get those things to the right place, it should not be a struggle um, as much to lose weight. But I think, like, at what point is it um, the hormones or is it just genetics? Because I've always had a bit of a little belly. Like, I, I've never had a completely flat belly, like, ever. My mom doesn't. Like, it just, it's just our family yeah. doesn't. I mean, I'm not a big girl, but I just, I've always had this little, you know, yeah, and I mean, you know, a little is one thing and having one that's, you know, really holding a lot of fat can be an issue because fat actually makes inflammatory markers. So okay. I don't know, I have never seen your entire body, Laura, but I can tell you that belly fat in general, like as it gets more and more, it does contribute to some of these hormonal issues in itself. Um, and, you know, your hormones are actually ruled by your genetics. How your body handles hormones is genetic, but that doesn't mean there are not things you can do about it because once we know your genetics, we know what to do. Well, after the show, I'll stand up and I'll show you my belly. Okay. <laughs> All right. How can we prepare ourselves for these changes? You, I mean, we know that it's inevitable. It's going to come. Although some women don't experience any hot flashes or changes. I mean, I've, I've talked to a few. Mm -hmm. We're going to take a quick break. When we come back, we're going to continue our chat about hormones and aging with Dr. Emmy. Amazing show. You don't want to go anywhere. Welcome back to the Dating and Relationship Show with Laura Bellotta from singleinthecity.ca. Toronto's News, today's talk, 640 Toronto. It's Sunday night. You're listening to the Dating and Relationship Show on AM640 Toronto with myself, Laura Bellotta, my special guest, Dr. Emmy, chatting about hormones and aging. And stay with us, guys. We're going to be talking about your sex life in just a little bit. I would like to know now, how can we prepare ourselves for these changes? We know that they're coming. Mm -hmm. Is there anything that we can do ahead of time to start prepping our bodies for this? Yeah, there's many things. So, you know, some people that sail through menopause, it has to do with habits. And some people, they sail through because genetically, they just hang on to more estrogen. So, but there are certain habits that are general to everyone that don't take a workup. So some of the things that can increase hot flashes are alcohol, particularly. At that's, night. that's me. When I don't drink, like I, I, I really don't get as many hot flashes. So I try yeah. to avoid alcohol at all costs, especially during the week. But sometimes like there's a Halloween party that went on, you know, uh, <laughs> that's a little different. I will indulge, but I really don't drink during the week anymore. I've cut it yeah. out completely. So prepare for hot flashes. And if there's no contraindications to curcumin, you can take some curcumin. Sometimes that helps metabolize alcohol, but check with your doctor. Okay. Them. Yeah. True. True uh, story. But, doctor. But avoiding alcohol is a biggie. Eating low glycemic, so not eating a lot of foods that are going to spike your blood sugar actually really helps with hot flashes. So not eating a lot of simple carbohydrates, sugar, white bread, white potatoes, white rice, you know, even brown rice actually has a lot of sugar. So, you know, stick with the better carbs. Like the wild Did you say food. brown rice has sugar? It does. It turns into sugar. It does? It does. Oh so no, for, forever. For I thought brown rice was good for me. I did too. I mean, it was causing me a lot of weight gain, but I switched to wild rice, which actually okay. has a lot fewer carbs. So you can do wild rice, um, you know, sweet potatoes instead of white potatoes, you know, try to eat the better complex carbs. 
um, because that really helps with blood sugar. And actually the complex carbs are helpful when it comes to hormone production because you can't really make thyroid hormone without any carbohydrates. So I know, I know a lot of women do keto, but it's a little bit tough to make hormones on keto. Some people do okay, some don't. So that's, I was one that didn't. I kind of follow an anti-inflammatory paleo diet because I really had more issues with my thyroid when I went completely keto. Um, do you believe, do you believe in the 80, 20 rule? Like good 80%. Well, yeah. 80% of the time you eat healthy, like, and then 20%. Okay. Indulge a little bit. I believe in the 98, two rule. <laughs> okay. The 90, 10. Did you say 90, 10 rule? 98, two. But <laughs> okay. 98, two rule. So hard, but I hear you. I do. Yeah. I mean, I, I, I cheat once every couple of months. I'd say I have like once every couple of months mm -hmm. by what having dark chocolate. No, dark chocolate I have every day. I do super with dark, dark chocolate, but my favorite is this croissant that they have in Seattle. There's this bakery called Bakery Nouveau, <laughs> and the guy like beats the pants off any bakery I ever had in Paris. Um, I love so it. I'll take a couple bites of that croissant every few months, and it's this sugar and butter, you know, and it, it's worth it to me to feel a little sick and have some hot flashes after. Um, but I do take my turmeric and, and some things to mitigate my allergies. But yeah, for the most part, you know, staying away from sugary foods actually really helps. And then regular exercise helps. And, you know, what I encourage women to do who are at our age, which is 35 and over, is do aerobics that you enjoy, like walk with a friend. You know, for me, it's like riding my exercise bike while I watch something. Dance, so do aerobics dance. That are like very, very, you know, crazy, like super high intensity for most of us is not mm -hmm. a good thing. Because uh, you can injure yourself. And once you injure yourself, it's really hard to, you know, do good things. <laughs> and then also make sure that you have a lifting workout or a band workout or something that's going to build muscle. Pilates is a great one for that. Because muscle dictates metabolism. And muscle really helps control hormones, including keeping your testosterone levels good. So that's mm -hmm. super, super helpful. So the lifestyle things, you know, watch your sugar in your diet, watch your alcohol, exercise. Those will actually take, you know, 80% of hot flashes away. For most people, really, those things, yes. Okay, but they're not going to necessarily help with things like moisture, you know, in the intimate places or your skin. There are things that help that if you can't do hormones, like for instance, fish oil is very helpful with that, and also the eyes. I I, I can't put in my lenses unless I take fish oil, but the hormones do really help those moisture things. And you know, the, the studies actually show that unless you're taking progestins, which an which is an artificial kind of progesterone, most hormone regimens, when you look at large population-based studies, which would be estradiol um, or estradiol plus progesterone, uh, do not seem to increase the risk of breast cancer in wide populations. Now, you have to specialize this to every person. If somebody has a huge family history of estrogen receptor positive breast cancer, then I'm not going to like willy-nilly just put them on hormones without checking their genetics, checking how they're clearing these hormones and all that. I'm not saying I would never put them on it either, but it's very individual, you know, but the large population-based studies show that for the most part, hormones do not cause cancer. Now, if you have a breast cancer, they can make it grow. So you should know that. And that's why they take people off of them once you're diagnosed with a, you know, estrogen or progesterone receptor positive breast cancer. No, I just want to get back to the alcohol part for a second, because uh, drinking alcohol is a lifestyle for some people. Some people have cottages, they have friends over a lot, they have yes. parties, it's, it's hard to get away uh, from alcohol entirely. Uh -huh. Is there an amount like an acceptable amount that you can be drinking every week? Because my doctor, I think told me 
for someone my age, like no more than five drinks a week. Does that sound right? Yeah. I mean, that's a good rule because if you look at it for every drink that you have over one drink a day as a woman, on average, you increase your risk of cancer, all cause cancer by 17%. So definitely five drinks a week and five actual serving size drinks. Cause a lot of people think like a glass of whiskey, that's this big, you know, that's eight ounces. Whiskey. <laughs> you know, it's the one ounce of the hard liquor, the three ounces of wine, you know, the five ounces of beer or whatever, really stick with those serving sizes because you don't want to be going over that with the alcohol because the mm -hmm. alcohol can also damage your gut. That's what a lot of people. And I, it, mine for sure. Like I, I definitely have to fix my gut right now, but I find that eating healthy alone won't fix my gut. Like I have to, I, I went on this food combining diet once and it really helped me where I ate my, uh, had my fruit in the morning. I didn't mix it with any food at all. I had carbs and vegetables together and then proteins and vegetables together. I couldn't mix my carbs and my proteins. And then I had to eat a lot of whole grains and, and just nuts and seeds and really ate, I ate healthy and I, I eliminated coffee and alcohol and believe it or not, my gut got better. It took it, two years, I think it was healthy. And then I went back to my old habits. And of course, I went back to where it is right now. Um, does that sound right to you? Have you heard of the food combining diet? I have. I mean, I don't normally, that's not the approach I take. I, I take more of an anti-inflammatory diet approach, um, getting rid of foods that tends to cause inflammation, looking at your particular sensitivities and allergies. But yeah, I think it could work for some people for sure who have. And again, that's a blood test. Right. Exactly. And I need to see you, girl. <laughs> I need to see you. I really do. I, I guys, you guys have to top, tap in with Dr. Emmy. She's absolutely incredible. And I'm just going to ask you right now, you know, where can people go? I'm going to ask you at the end of the show as well. I just think someone like you is needed in this health space and we need more of you. Yeah. So where to find me? The best place to find me is actually on Instagram at Dr. Spelled out dot EMI at Dr. Spelled out dot EMI. I'm also on TikTok with the same name at doctor.emmy and on YouTube with the same name at doctor.emmy. Um, I always answer my DMs. Um, you know, I can't give people specific health advice if I'm not working with them, but I can give them some general tips, um, you know, and answer questions about my videos and that kind of thing. And I also do work with people. There's a link tree in my bio uh, in both Instagram and TikTok that you can click to, you know, schedule what's called a discovery call to talk to my staff about what working with me would look like. So. Okay. I'm going to take a quick break. When we come back, we're going to be talking to Dr. Emmy on changing hormones and your sex life. We'll be back. You're listening to the Dating and Relationship Show with Laura Galata from singleinthecity.ca. Toronto's News. Today's talk, 640 Toronto. You're listening to AM640 Toronto with myself, Laura Villada, and my special guest tonight, Dr. Emmy, on changing hormones and your sex life. Because that's what we're going to be talking about now. Uh, who doesn't want to talk about sex? <laughs> uh, we may be getting older, Dr. Emmy, but you know, we're still interested in relationships and having a sex life. How can your hormones affect this? And uh, what are some of the biggest changes that, that we can expect? I, I've heard of some people not wanting sex. I've heard of some people wanting more sex, drying out, yeah, all that. It can, be, it can be both, you know. So some people, when they hit their mid-30s, their body goes like, oh, this is your chance to have babies. You, know, you really, really want to do that. And so they kind of get more desire. 
But a lot of people have the opposite. So if there's someone who's DHEA, that hormone we talked about that comes from the adrenals and shuts off cortisol and your fight or flight hormones, those people who don't make that as much, sometimes they can have a decrease in their desire because their fight or flight hormones remain high and they kind of feel hypervigilant. People that have anxiety tend to have more of that happen. There's some genetic things that can be part of that. Like if you have a certain gene, it's called COMT, carboxyomethyltransferase. You don't get rid of cortisol as well. So that hit in your DHEA that happens around 35-ish can really hit you a lot harder where you become more irritable and have more issues with desire. So that can be like one of the first things that happens because DHEA goes down years before estrogen or anything else goes down. Testosterone and progesterone actually go down next usually starting in your low, in your early forties, those start to take a hit kind of ending more in your fifties. And so that can actually cause an issue. And actually, you know, there's called something called hypoactive sexual desire uh, disorder that um, becomes heightened in menopause because of these hormonal changes. Now, some people have this disorder earlier, but they don't have sexual desire. And it has to do with like trauma and upbringing and certain things that they've had. And that requires more therapy, but a lot of people get it at menopause just from these hormonal changes of the decreased testosterone, the decreased progesterone, and all that. Sometimes hormonal therapy can be really helpful. Then the last oh, thing- Oh, sorry, go ahead, yep. The last thing that goes down is estrogen. And estrogen has a lot to do with vaginal moisture, skin moisture, and all of that. And so when people kind of feel like they're drying up, that's estrogen. Of course, in North America, a lot of us are also really low on our omega-3s because our diets are very high in those very inflammatory omega-6 type mm-hmm. oils that come from seeds and less with the you know omega-3s that come from like uh, flax and, and uh, walnuts and, and, and fish. And so um, the, that dryness hits us a lot more because if you're omega-3 deficient, your estrogen falls are just going to notice it a lot more. But there are things you can do about all of that. Okay. What can we do about it? (laughs) So (laughs) how can you balance them out? So you can actually, you know, like I said, you can do hormone therapy. You can do certain supplements that help with hormones. Like one of my favorites, even for people that can't do hormones is this rhubarb root extract called Estrovera. um, That's been studied for 25 years in Europe. Uh, They even studied it in Germany and people who had breast cancer. Now, if you've had breast cancer, talk to your doctor before taking it but it happens to act as an anti-estrogen in the breast and the uterus, but acts as an estrogen in the vagina, the vessels where it helps with hot flashes in the brain, where it helps with thinking because estrogen actually has a lot to do with our thinking too. So, you know, there are non-hormonal therapies you can do also. Um, Like I was saying, you can take omega-3s to help that vaginal moisture, but hormones really help the most. And there's a lot of data that, you know, doing hormones locally is safe into your nineties really in that area. And women can get this sort of um, irritation that comes from these low hormones with menopause and they get things like recurrent urinary tract infections, which can be life-threatening. And a lot of doctors don't know about how safe hormonal therapy locally in that small dose is to that area. So they don't do anything about it. Uh, So not only can it affect your sex life, it can affect your whole life, you know? So it's really important to get with a doctor that really understands this and and knows about the literature when it comes to this and, and your sex life and your life in general. So basically you are saying that there are ways to increase your libido or your desire. Absolutely. I mean, I put ladies on small doses of vaginal estrogen with a little bit of DHEA with a little bit of testosterone 
and you know all of a sudden the, the that skin gets really moist and they get more blood flow to that area and oh my gosh you know their desire is there um it's not that simple for everyone like every it's a case-by-case -case basis like i said sometimes there are mental blocks sometimes there are other hormonal things going on like their cortisol is really high but you know for a lot of women it's it's a simple thing and now when men lose their sexual desire again mm -hmm. is it because of hormones i know this might be a question, but i really don't know it <laughs> just kind of popped in my mind i thought i'd ask this week i was at a sexual health conference where they actually have this new device that they can put uh on the member and what it does is it overnight records how many times you're getting uh you know hard overnight mm -hmm. and so if you're a man that's getting hard overnight but you're having trouble then usually there's something going on you know mentally that's blocking it but then you know if that's okay and we do an ultrasound and you have good blood flow down there um sometimes it can be testosterone too and then for men um you know that can be one of the first signs like basically losing erections can be the first sign of cardiovascular disease i heard that i think it was you that told me that i heard right. you in a clubhouse room and yeah. that's interesting because that affects many men yeah really so if, they, if they're able to you know get it up at night that's it's usually not a vascular issue but if they if they if they're not even having erections at night then usually that is vascular. And then we do an ultrasound vascularly and we can look at the, at the, you know, penile blood flow, but then you also want to look at the neck and you want to look at the heart, because if you have it in one place, you're probably going to have it other places and it can be life-threatening. Well, guys, thanks so much for listening in on this week's episode of the dating and relationship show. Our bodies go through a lot of changes as we age that impact our health, our relationships and our sex lives, but paying attention to your hormonal health can make a difference. So let's keep this conversation going with Dr. Emmy. Dr. Emmy, one more time. How can people get a hold of you and all your amazing wisdom? Thank you so much. So I am at Dr. Spelled out dot EMI at Dr. Emmy on both Instagram and TikTok and soon to come on Facebook. Actually, I'm starting a new page on Facebook. I'm also on YouTube under that name and my DMs are always open. Like I said, I can't give you personal health advice if you're not working with me, but I can give everyone general, you know, answer general questions. I have a lot of videos about all this material that we're talking about. So check me out there because I think you'll get something out of it. How do you even have time for social media? Like I can't even find the time. I can't imagine a doctor. <laughs> and for myself, guys, follow me on Instagram and TikTok at official Laura Bellata. And also check out my site, singleinthecity.ca, if you are single and looking for love in 2022, 2023. Thank you so much for joining us tonight. Ciao.